Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 54, Rispin Mansion. When I first moved to Santa Cruz in 1996, I, like so many other young people away from their hometown for the first time, had trouble adjusting. My solution was to go to the transit center in downtown Santa Cruz, pick a bus at random, ride it until I felt that I was in a good place to explore, and then make my way back to the university on foot. As counterproductive as that may sound as a coping mechanism for homesickness, it was actually a tremendous success. The exploration helped me become more familiar with my new home, and I have always been someone who enjoyed being on foot and exploring new places. This may not be a great solution for many people, but it was the perfect solution for me. One day, I took a bus to an area known as Pleasure Point. After walking a few blocks to the west, I saw that there was a road that ran north alongside a large creek, so I decided to follow that road. After 20 minutes or so of walking, I came across a large wall. Built into that wall was a wooden door that hung ajar, unlocked and open wide enough for me to enter, looking like something out of a fairy tale. I walked through the mysterious door and found myself in a large graded area, in the center of which appeared to be a long defunct fountain, and nearby an empty concrete reflecting pool. Looking up a bit, I saw a large, clearly abandoned mansion built to look like an Italian villa. Despite clearly being abandoned and in disrepair, the building still had a grandeur about it and was quite beautiful. It was boarded up and, if I recall correctly, portions of it were fenced off, but you could still walk up to its walls and look in its windows. Of course, I did so. The interior was stripped of any furniture it might once have contained, and the walls were covered in graffiti. And while those facts didn't reduce the grandeur of the exterior, they did add an element of menace, a layer of creepiness. I explored for a bit and discovered additional features and outbuildings, but nothing that told me who built this mansion or when. I went home to my on-campus apartment and I told my housemates what I had found, but none of them, including two who had been living in the area for a couple of years, knew what I was talking about. This being the early days of the internet, I could find nothing online, and I had very little luck learning anything about this house in the library. But I did eventually have a stroke of luck. Another member of an organization that I was involved with off-campus was a woman in her late 30s who had a lifelong interest in local history, and, as it turned out, she had done a lot of research on this house in particular. As soon as I described it, she knew what I was talking about. It was the Rispin Mansion. She provided a thumbnail description of the house's history and pointed me towards some additional sources. And now, with the name attached to the house, I was able to find more information both in the library and online. 
Between the information that my friend had provided and what I found through research, I learned that the house had been built in the 1920s by Henry Allen Rispin, a wealthy businessman originally from Canada who had bought most of the land in and around Capitola. He was once one of the forces behind the development of the modern Capitola village area, but he would lose his fortune and he and his family experienced a range of misfortunes. In order to stave off bankruptcy, Rispin sold the land and the house. However, he had lost so much in the financial chaos of the late 1920s and early 1930s that he was eventually buried in an unmarked pauper's grave in Colma, California. Colma, it is worth noting, was founded as a necropolis in the 1920s, a place for San Francisco to bury its dead, and to where many of San Francisco's historic age graves have been moved. It is often referred to as California's City of the Dead. The Colma Cemetery, in which Rispin was buried, is reputed to also be where various violent criminals, including serial killers, have been laid to rest. But back to the mansion. After Rispin sold it, the buyer sold it again to an order of nuns who used it as a convent. It was then abandoned in the late 1950s, but squatters used it in the 1960s and 1970s as a hippie commune. It was again abandoned, but during the 1980s it was bought by the city of Capitola and used by the Capitola police as a place to train police dogs and SWAT teams. And, of course, it was again abandoned in the 1990s. There have been numerous efforts to rehabilitate the house, as a library, a hotel, and various other facilities, but none of them have ever come to fruition. And, of course, it is haunted. Although numerous different stories are attributed to the place, ranging from the truly strange and difficult to explain to the just plain silly, there are a few specific stories that show up routinely in written accounts, as well as some that people who grew up in the area told me. The most commonly reported spirit, as far as I can tell, is a woman dressed in black clothes. Some have said that this is the spirit of a nun, but others hold that it is not a nun, but simply the spirit of a woman wearing a black dress. The woman is often oblivious to visitors, but she will sometimes tell them that they have to leave. If the woman in black is not a nun, then there are those who report seeing the spirit specifically of a nun. Some have claimed that she was the head of the convent, and she is reported to be a protective presence, calming to those who encounter her. Unsurprisingly, many people report seeing Henry Rispin walking the halls of this house. I've never heard anybody clarify how they knew it was Rispin. Having seen the man's photo, he doesn't have any clearly distinguishing features. But nonetheless, many people have claimed to see him walking the halls and standing in rooms in the mansion. Typically, he is said to be on the first floor, and he wears glasses when seen. Some of the people have encountered a woman in Victorian clothing on either the second floor or the top fourth floor, apparently searching for a book. I'm not clear how a witness would know that she is looking for a book, as the furniture, including bookcases, are long since gone. Also, it is curious that she would be dressed in a Victorian manner as the structure was built in the 1920s. Some tellings combine this woman with the woman in black or with the nun, but others indicate that this is a distinct ghost from the other two. In the basement, there are said to be three possibly distinct ghosts. One is a dog who can be heard barking, although nobody ever seems to see it. Another is a man, thought to be a squatter, who was trapped underneath the debris when part of the building fell on him and who died of dehydration. He's often heard calling out for help, though, again, nobody sees him. The last is a violent, angry, and evil presence, again, never seen, 
but often felt. Lay people visiting the location have reported feeling uneasy and frightened while in the basement, while two psychics who visited with the Santa Cruz ghost hunters reported feeling hostility and developing nausea and headaches while down there. One resource I found indicated that two caretakers of the house died within it of old age. It went on to insinuate, though it did not state, that they also haunted the home. Older stories that I've heard from locals include strange screams coming from the house, figures moving about and jumping out at people, knocks on the walls, whispers that can be heard from within the house, and other ghostly manifestations fairly typical of haunted houses. Strange whispers that nobody can quite make out, weird feelings of being watched, cold spots, and things just glimpsed out of the corner of the eye. And, of course, many people have quite excitedly obtained photos of orbs in the house. In fact, back in 2007, I found myself talking with a fellow who'd been taking pictures through the windows, and he was very excited to note that he had gotten photos of orbs, thus proving that ghosts were present in the house but I'll have more to say about that incident in the commentary. In 2012, the Santa Cruz ghost hunters spent a night at the mansion with the permission of the city of Capitola. During the investigation, the psychics reported meeting the nun who informed them that they would be safe if they stayed out of the basement. In the basement, they reported the nausea and ill feelings previously mentioned, attributing them to coming from the evil spirit. One of the ghost hunters had been calling out to the spirit and reported having been pushed or kicked while walking down the stairs to the basement. Video of the event shows what appears to be a shoe or boot mark on the leg of her pants. In 2009, after a successful petition to refurbish the mansion and turn it into a bed and breakfast, it was gutted in a mysterious fire. Some suspected arson, but others believe that the fire was the house's sign that it did not want new occupants. It is often said that the misfortunes of the Rispin family, multiple failures to rebuild, and the mysterious fire proves that the house is cursed. One local legend holds that anyone who lives in the house is doomed to lose all of the money that they have. Regardless, the Rispin mansion is a local landmark and, in its increasing decay, looks very much like the definition of a haunted house. It is not the least bit surprising that it has a spooky reputation. Commentary. The Rispin Mansion was built in 1921, during the Prohibition era, by Henry Allen Rispin, who had hoped to further develop the resort area in Capitola. The house was, based on available information, never intended to serve as Rispin's residence, but rather as a location from which he could wine and dine and try to sell other wealthy people parcels of land in the area. Rispin had bought most of the land surrounding Capitola, including the existing hotel, concessions, a golf course, and a tent and cottage village near the wharf called Camp Capitola that had served as a vacation spot for decades. Rispin intended to develop Capitola into a much more upscale vacation destination, the Riviera of the West Coast. For those familiar with the area, Camp Capitola stood in the location of what is now Capitola Village. As the effective owner of the entire town, Rispin was responsible for infrastructure, Many of the sources that I have come across indicate that he was not a particularly good landlord. He allowed some of the infrastructure to fall into disrepair or failed to make upgrades as needed. He also did not pay for the required water and fire protection. 
As someone who is a renter in the Santa Cruz area for many years, I can say that, if these accusations are true, Rispin was part of a not-so-proud local tradition in this regard. Henry Allen Rispin appears, from the glimpses we get of him in the historic record, to have been an interesting, if not always delightful, person. And there is a mystique about him that adds to the house's reputation. Rispin's background is a bit obscure. He was in the oil business and is often described as an oil tycoon. But Carolyn Swift cites researcher Peggy Kirby as stating that it is not clear that Rispin's fortune was due to his own business chops as opposed to marrying Annette Winfield Blake, who was the daughter of a successful oil man. Regardless, by the time he was purchasing Capitola, the purchases were attributed to him through his Capitola Company and later Bayhead Land Company, and not to his wife's family money. Rispin's work to develop Capitola was, based on newspaper articles at the time, somewhat chaotic. Plans were publicly announced and then changed with little notice. He sold lots on which buyers could build their vacation homes and did so with flair, but not always clear forethought for how the infrastructure to support homes might be built. However, he and an Australian immigrant by the name of E.V. Teddy Wodehouse, who bought land from Rispin, did develop Capitola Village, even building a set of Italianate condominiums on the beachfront known as the Venetian Court. They are still standing and are quite delightful. Further developments included the paving of the roads and the construction of the Esplanade, a row of buildings that would eventually house nightclubs, dance halls, and in the late 1990s, my favorite Thai restaurant. Not relevant to the story, but I do miss that place. But all was not well. Unusually high tides in 1926 damaged the Esplanade and concession services. Capitola also developed a reputation for drunkenness and a ready availability of alcohol, a bit of a problem during Prohibition. Many who had bought lots in Capitola from Rispin became concerned at the lack of paved streets and utility services, despite having been promised these very things. Beginning in 1928, Rispin began to sell his Capitola assets at a higher rate, including a second auction of lots in Capitola. Some of the sources I found indicate that many of these assets had been seized by creditors and sold without Rispin's input, but most indicate that he was actively involved in trying to divest himself of his Capitola real estate ventures. Regardless, by 1930, the Belline Company, with whom Rispin had worked to sell lots in Capitola, filed an attachment against the Bayhead Land Company, and mortgage holders foreclosed on, and then sold, the mansion. Rispin vanishes from Capitola sometime around 1930 or 1931, though he was still listed in the Capitola phone directory in 1931. He popped up in Chicago the following year and then falls out of the historic record again. Henry Allen Rispin reportedly became quite poor. He even had to ask acquaintances and former business associates for money in order to eat. At some point in the 1930s, Annette separated from him and he was left on his own. She died of a cerebral embolism at the age of 55 in 1941. Rispin's son, Alan, made a go at the oil business, but what information I could find indicates that he had little luck. Alan also became somewhat sparse in the historic record. His mother's ashes were sent to him when he was living in Imola, California, where he might have been a patient at the Napa State Hospital. I recall seeing paperwork that indicated that he had spent time as either a psychiatric or neurology patient, but I cannot confirm this and I wouldn't trust my memory of what I saw some 25 years ago. Regardless, Allen was living at the Watsonville YMCA at the time of his death in 1946, which indicates that he was homeless. He died following a two-day series of epileptic seizures. He was in his mid-40s.
Henry Allen Rispin died in April of 1947 in San Francisco. He is, indeed, buried in an unmarked grave in Colma. While it is highly likely that some of the others buried alongside him are from Alcatraz, most of the nearby graves are likely those of other impoverished or homeless people that the city of San Francisco buried as inexpensively as possible. Back to the house. The mansion was bought from the mortgage company by Robert Hayes Smith, a former business associate of Rispin's. Some of the sources I found indicated that Smith's wife never liked the house because she couldn't claim its grandeur as her own due to it being built by someone else. This seems a little fanciful to me, a detail added to suggest decadence and ego, but it may very well be true. Regardless, Hayes also lost his fortune due to the financial disruptions of the Great Depression and, in 1939, surrendered the house. In 1940, poor Clares, an order of nuns within the Catholic Church, purchased the house. The order established St. Joseph's Monastery to allow the nuns to live in isolation and contemplation. However, the nuns were objects of curiosity to the local residents, who would often peek into the property to see them. In 1957, the nuns left, establishing a facility in nearby Aptos, and the building was derelict for a while. Squatters made use of it, and reportedly a hippie commune moved in during the 1960s. By the 70s, the mansion was a favored trespass spot for local teenagers. By the early 80s, the ghost stories appear to have surfaced, although it is likely that several had been in circulation prior to that. In addition to the grand exterior of the house, the interior holds a bit of mystery. There are secret passages and hidden rooms within the mansion, including one that used to be hidden by a bookcase. And these are not mere rumors. They are clearly shown on the floor plans that accompany the National Register nomination for the building. Local lore holds that they were used by bootleggers smuggling alcohol during Prohibition. While this is actually not a far-fetched idea, it certainly is something that did occur throughout the country. An article from the Santa Cruz Sentinel cites Carolyn Swift, a local historian who is responsible for the Capitola volume of the Images of America series, as stating that the tales of bootlegging were created by locals due to them simply not knowing much about Rispin due to his disinterest in being part of the community. Swift states that one of the locations is a wine storage room. And keep in mind that making and keeping wine for personal use was legal during Prohibition. But that does leave open the question of why these hidden rooms and passages exist. But I will readily admit that I know little about 1920s mansions, and a quick Google search found that hidden rooms and halls within mansions are surprisingly common. So, I'm sure that these served a purpose at the Rispin Mansion, but I am not in a position to argue with Miss Swift regarding whether or not they were used for rum running. I will note that the National Register of Historic Places nomination form does state that there are six chimney flues, but only five fireplaces, and that the sixth flue does lead to a strange basement room with no fireplace. The city planner who filled out the form speculates that this may be a sign that a still was used in this room to produce illegal alcohol, but it's unclear whether this is based on historical documentation or a speculation based on local tradition. This particular house is near and dear to my heart for three reasons. The first is my initial discovery of it, which I described earlier. That was a good day, and the strange mystery that this house seemed to pose fascinated me until I was able to learn more about it. The second reason is that back in 2000, I lived just two blocks away from this house. I finally lived in a neighborhood with a proper haunted house, and a mansion at that. It was a favorite spot for me to take walks, and I have quite fond memories of that period of my life. 
The third reason is a bit more unusual. You see, I have met one of the ghosts. I mentioned in the introduction the woman I knew who had a fascination with local history. Well, she had long had a particular fascination with the Rispin Mansion, dating to her teenage years in the 1970s and 1980s. As I previously described, she was able to give me a large amount of detail about the buildings and the lives of the various members of the Rispin family, which was pretty fascinating stuff. She also made clear her disgust for the vandals who would routinely do damage to the place. And then she told me something very interesting. As teenagers, she and her friends would go to the house in the evenings and find hiding places in secret passages, in hidden corners, etc. And when others would come to do damage, this group of self-appointed protectors would jump out of the passages screaming, let loose with eerie moans, and generally do all they could to freak out would-be vandals. Given her descriptions and the details of how she and her friends would try to frighten others, I was able to easily match them with some of the ghost stories I had been told. It quickly became apparent that some of the local tales likely had their roots in her activities. In other words, it was one of those rare Scooby-Doo moments when you unmask the monster only to discover that it's Mr. Johnson who runs the carnival, or in this case, a bunch of inspired teenagers. Not all heroes wear capes. But not all of the stories could be laid at my friend's feet. For example, she never mentioned dressing in the various costumes necessary for some of the specters, and many of the stories post-date her time terrorizing would-be vandals. But still, it was fun to meet a person who had masqueraded as a ghost. In researching this story, I found a quote from Carolyn Swift in one of the Santa Cruz Sentinel articles, in which she states that nobody believed that this place was haunted prior to the late 1990s, when a television crew filmed there looking for ghosts. Now, I made a lot of use of Miss Swift's writing in this episode, and I respect her abilities as a historian. But on this point, she is simply wrong. I found stories online dating to the mid rather than the late 90s claiming ghost encounters in this place. And in talking to locals, I found out that many of them could trace stories they had heard to the 1980s, if not earlier. You might respond by saying that these were simply kid stories, not to be taken seriously. In which case, I would reply by asking, so what? The folklore of children and teens is still folklore. The stories still motivate action and interact with people's worldviews, and they are still remembered when those children and teens become adults. It may very well be that a television show from the late 90s prompted a more widespread belief that the location is haunted, and it may have been the seed that led groups such as the Santa Cruz Ghost Hunters to take claims of haunting seriously. But such claims were already present in the community that physically surrounds the Rispin Mansion. The involvement of the Santa Cruz ghost hunters did, however, create a sense of legitimacy to these claims. While paranormal investigation groups are not generally accepted in the sciences, they have become culturally prominent since around the year 2000, and they are often seen by interested members of the public as authorities on the supernatural. The broadcast of television shows such as Most Haunted and Ghost Hunters, as well as the many other derivative types of shows that now clog the Travel Channel schedule, has introduced the public to the figure of the paranormal investigator as a professional, or at least professional-ish, researcher who makes use of a variety of technologies as well as the efforts of psychics to determine what is happening at haunted locations. There is a sizable segment of the public who, as a result, see the interest of a paranormal investigation group such as the Santa Cruz Ghost Hunters as evidence in favor of a location being haunted. 
So while locals had been spinning haunted house yarns about the Rispin Mansion for years, the interest of the Santa Cruz ghost hunters signaled that these may be more than just tall tales. As documented by sociologists and anthropologists who have worked with paranormal investigation groups, many of them function very differently than they are portrayed in the media. There is more self-criticism, more room for doubt, and potentially more constructive questioning present than their television counterparts ever show. However, that same ethnographic work also shows that much of this helpful and valuable uncertainty is kept behind the scenes, so that a mask of confidence in the results of the investigation is communicated to the public. As a result, it is difficult for an outsider to tell the sensationalist showman from someone who is genuinely trying to make sense of what they perceive as strange or unexplainable. A result of this is that, while people who actively engage in paranormal investigator groups have a complex and nuanced view of what they do, many interested members of the public see things in more black and white terms. I have personally encountered this at the Rispin Mansion. I was visiting the location with a friend of mine who'd been trained at the Brooks Institute of Photography. We found ourselves talking to another visitor who was very excited about the photos that he had just taken, which had orbs in them. For the uninitiated, orbs are circular objects that sometimes show up in photos and which are often presented as evidence of a ghost's presence. My friend explained that the orbs in question appeared to actually be an artifact of how cameras work. The blobs we see are places where light has been reflected off of something small, such as dust, droplets of water, insects, or so on. And because of how cameras function, the camera picks up these reflections as a ball of light or color. Now, someone who is dedicated to paranormal investigation is likely to be aware of this mundane explanation for an orb and may therefore be more discerning in accepting any such photo as evidence of a ghost. However, this guy did not show any such restraint and insisted that my friend, who again had been formally trained as a photographer, didn't know what she was talking about and that this was clearly evidence of the spectral. It was a fascinating example of how someone with a lot of enthusiasm but little practical knowledge could put their belief above the explanation of an actual expert and of how some ideas can become so embedded within our culture that those who don't work with them in any serious way, either as a photographer or a paranormal investigator, will see them in very simplistic terms. In addition, there is an element of the New Age culture of the Santa Cruz area that has made an impression on the tales of the haunted Rispin Mansion. Back in the mid-1990s, when plans were developed to renovate the structure as a hotel, one of the many psychic, spiritual, medium, and healers that are rather ubiquitous in the Santa Cruz area came forth offering to help the spirits move on. And apparently this was welcomed by the developers. While it is certainly possible that the developers were worried about the potential for evil spirits, my own experiences living in the area and reading up on ghost tourism suggest that it was a PR move. Locally, this would be met with amusement by most of the residents and with approval by the many who have various New Age beliefs. This would also signal to those who were worried about encountering a ghost that a move had been made to prevent such an experience. To those who might wish to seek such an encounter, however, this would signal that there may still be ghosts at the mansion, even if the psychic claimed to have gotten them all to move out. Haunted hotels do decent business, and the mystery and what-if nature of such a place is often used as a marketing strategy. Regardless, the hotel plans never came to fruition, and the mansion continued to remain empty. There have been many attempts to revitalize the mansion since then, and each has, to date, failed. 
As noted earlier, this repeated failure has fed the legend of the curse of the Rispin Mansion. Currently, there is a plan to turn the surrounding area into a park, which seems to be moving along. However, a controversy has erupted over the naming of the park, and this has added another chapter to the legend of the Rispin Mansion. During the planning and community meetings for the planning of the park, it came to light that Rispin sold properties with what are known as racial covenants in the transferred title deeds. A racial covenant is language in the document that prohibits the sale of the property to people of a particular ethnicity and or requires that the property only be sold to people of particular ethnicities. Racial covenants were common in real estate transactions up through the middle of the 20th century. The enforcement of racial covenants is now prohibited in the United States, but they are an ugly element of the country's history. The revelation of these racial covenants caused a lot of people to insist that the park not be named after Rispin, as they appeared to show that he was clearly racist. Except that Rispin was not working alone. He had to work with title, mortgage, and insurance companies, all of which were known to demand racial covenants be made part of the real estate deals at that time. One historian researched this and found no clear evidence that Rispin himself wanted racial covenants to be part of these transactions, and therefore it is open to question whether or not Rispin himself held any racial animus. Put another way, there is no evidence that Rispin was personally racist versus doing business in a racist system. So does that make him racist? There are those who will say yes, since he sought to profit off of a system that was racist by design, he bears responsibility. Others will say that he was working within the confines of a system that he did not create and he shouldn't be held responsible for that. I take another approach, though. Henry Rispin was born in the late 19th century, became quite wealthy through extractive industries, and managed to become something of a weird absentee landlord. Given the time in which he lived, his ethnicity, and his position in life prior to the loss of his fortune, it would be pretty remarkable if he was not racist. As a general historical rule, in the absence of information to the contrary, you can assume that most people held the overall views and beliefs common to their time and position in society. So, if we have no information one way or another about Rispin's views on race, we can take a look at who he was and when he lived and say that, yeah, he was probably racist. Does that mean that the park shouldn't be named after him? Hell if I know. There is a definite purpose in using symbolic acts to indicate the values that we hold and wish to advance, and you could argue that not naming the park after Rispin would fall into the category. Alternatively, culture is always changing, and that includes changes to our values. It is not reasonable to demand that people of the past be held to our current values and beliefs. What's more, people are complex, and no one is simple and pure. All of us hold beliefs that others would find somewhere between disappointing and disturbing. Our own descendants may very well judge us harshly for views that we currently consider to be enlightened. Rispin was a product of his time, and the park to be built will be a product of ours. Controversy about whether or not his name is attached is about our uncomfortable relationship with history and our worries about the present. It's good for us to ask whether we want to memorialize past people who engaged in practices that we find repugnant. But this is about us and how we view the past. It's not actually about the long-dead Henry Rispin. That Rispin continues to be a figure of controversy seems fitting. That his name might be struck from the park seems rather appropriate. 
given how he vanished from Capitola after failing to enrich himself via the town. If his spirit is indeed still at the mansion, then perhaps it doesn't matter what the park is called. Henry Rispin will always be present. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!